You know, the Bible is a unique book. It's unique in all of the world. There's never been a publication ever that has the power of Scripture, the power to, to penetrate our lives. It has, a, it has a capacity to capture our minds and our hearts, but also to capture our imagination. That there's something at work in the Word of God that is unique because it is the Word of God. God supernaturally communicated his message to very, very fallible human beings, and yet somehow in that process, he protected the process. He, he protected the word as it was communicated. He protected it as it was translated down through the years, and there's, there's something about it. We, we know that it's, it's alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so when we go to the Bible, it's possible for us to read the same passage of Scripture in a different season of life and come away with something equally true and yet completely new. This is, this is part of the miracle of Scripture. And because it comes from God, it's not bound by words that you and I would come up with. It, there's a supernatural essence to the Bible. And so it's against that backdrop that we're going to wrap up this series that we began way back at Easter called Life of the Party. And today's message really comes down to actually just a phrase of the Bible, just, just one phrase that, that I think God put in there to, to really kind of stir something within us, to, to move us into a different dimension, to, to move our faith to the, to the HNL, to a hoe. Another level, as we like to say around here. And, and it's important, I think, for us to understand that God has the ability to do that, that he can take just a, a phrase that he inspired, that he communicated, that he protected as it was translated to move our lives in, in a new direction. And to get at this, if you've got your Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or one of those old school things called a book, I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter number six. First Timothy, chapter number six. Now, as you're looking at First Timothy six, I want to just give you a little context because First Timothy is the book that was actually a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the young pastor, his protege, Timothy. And throughout First and really Second Timothy as well, Paul is explaining to Timothy, he's encouraging this young pastor how to do the work of pastoring, how to explain to his congregation how the gospel is to be lived out, how it is relevant day in and day out. And it's, it's against this purpose of the letter that, that Paul writes a fascinating phrase in the sixth chapter. Now, of course, when Paul wrote the book of, or the letter to Timothy, it wasn't divided into chapters and verses. That, that came later so that we could identify certain addresses within the book. But it was this letter, and it was in this sixth chapter that Paul uses a phrase. Look at it's, it's right here on the screen, or you'll see it there in verse 19. The, the very last thing, he's, he's been explaining how the gospel is lived out, and, and he's telling him, this is what I want you to make sure that you teach the people of God, the family of God. But then he puts this phrase in there. So that... They may take hold of the life that is truly life, so that 
they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, what Paul is talking about here, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is the fact that there are a lot of substitute forms of life available to us as human beings. We, we all, I mean, is there anybody here who, who maybe you've read books or seen movies of people who, who took hold of some substitutes of the life that was truly life? You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? If you've maybe seen somebody who, who chased a, a material dream or maybe they, they, they went after a particular relationship or a person that they thought was going to satisfy all of their needs. Paul is saying, I want you to make sure that you are explaining to the family of faith, Timothy, that there is a life that is truly life and everything else is a distraction. As a matter of fact, Paul is really talking to Timothy about what was introduced all the way back in Exodus. In Exodus chapter number 20, we know that's where God encapsulated the Ten Commandments originally, spoken to Moses, written down on stone tablets. The Ten Commandments begin with the command, thou shalt have no other gods before me, no other distractions, that is, no other idols in our lives. Now, in 2017, you and I look all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, and we think, man, that was 1,400, 1,500 years before Christ. They were so primitive back then. They would, they would actually carve pieces of wood and bow down and worship those. I, I even remember from Exodus, didn't they make a, a, a cow out of gold and try to worship that golden cow in the wilderness? Oh, they were so primitive. Ooh. We're so much more advanced than that. But are we? Are we that much more advanced? I mean, isn't it possible in 2017 with all of our technological advances, all of our academic achievements, isn't it still possible to be distracted from the life that is truly life? Isn't it possible for us to have idols in our lives, even still today, we probably don't have anything in our backyard that we bow down to, but we can absolutely, absolutely fall prey to the pull of idols. Let, let me give you just a working definition of what idols are, just, just something to keep in mind. If you'll write down the word idols, I-D-O-L-S, idols are just illusions of divine order love, and significance. Just illusions of divine order, love, and significance. Because don't we, there, there's something inside of us, we, we think that we, we really want to just be more orderly, because really what we want in the order is the peace. Is there anybody in the house who walked in today and you've got too much peace in your life? Can I just see, if you've got too much peace, you ought to be preaching. Let, let me put it another way. How many of us, your pastor included, walked in the door today stressed about something, some things, someone? How, how many of us could say, man, I, I need some more order. I, I need some more peace. Peace. 
in my life. And it's, it's got to be more than just scheduling strategies or, or making sure that I'm saying yes to the right things and no to the, but there's something deeper going on there. There's a reason why we're overscheduled, overcommitted, overbooked. There, there's something at a soul level about why we need that, that, that order, but we settle for those illusions of divine order. We, we settle for the illusion of divine love. I mean, isn't it true that a lot of times we'll, we'll look to people in our lives hoping that they provide enough love and, and care for us that we'll feel like we really and truly are loved and cared for when in reality we're created by the God who is love. He is the one who is the author of all love. He is the source of all love. Whatever you believe about God, whatever you walked in the doors thinking or having as a presupposition about the personality and character of God, start with the fact that God is love. And any substitute for his love will absolutely prove to be an illusion eventually. But the, the, there's also this, this need that we have for significance. We're born wanting to know that we matter. And actually, when we're born, we think that we matter more than anything else in the world. When we're born, we're the center of the universe. <laughs> and, and if you doubt that, you've never spent any time with a three-year-old. That, that's just part of the human condition. But we know from Scripture that, that God made us in his image, that, that we are so significant that, that God knows the number of hairs on our head, that, that God knows us by name, that, that God has made us just a little lower than the angels, the Bible says. That's how significant we really, really are. And so to look to anything or to anyone else for that significance is to set ourselves up for incredible frustration and disappointment. These idols get in the way of the life that is truly life. And Paul has really just kind of explained how this happens. In the verses leading up to this passage here in verse 19, if you go all the way back to verse 9 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at what Paul says to the young pastor. And, by the way, to you and me. Look at what he says. He says, but people who long to be rich, they, they fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Paul is saying, Timothy, make sure that your people understand that, that money, it, it just is. It's not, it's not evil. Have you ever heard somebody tell you that, that, try to tell you that money is the root of all evil? That's wrong. Thanks for playing. You just step up and go, no, 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 no. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It, it creates all kinds of problems and distractions. But look at what Paul said. It's a fascinating phrase here. He says, some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and 
pierced themselves with many sorrows. Pierced themselves with many sorrows. When I was about six or seven years old, my family took a summer vacation and we drove from Houston to San Antonio, Texas, where we went to the Alamo. Have, has everybody here, if you've been to the Alamo, raise your hand. Okay, you sh, you sh, if you haven't been to the Alamo, don't tell anybody you go to Lake Hills Church, okay? This is a spiritual journey and pilgrimage that everybody should make. And the Alamo, it, it's a museum. And like all museums in Disney World, when you finish the tour, there's a gift shop. And I remember walking into the gift shop at the Alamo when I was a small boy and walking in with my mom and dad and my brothers. And I'm telling you, it was like, it was like a homing beacon, just whoop. And I zeroed in on this cheap little Bowie knife that they had for sale at the Alamo gift shop. Now, it, it was a real knife. It, it had a, a sharp edge, but the handle was plastic. But man, I didn't care. I was like, Dad, can I, can I get the knife? That, that might be the actual knife that Jim Bowie used on his bed when he fought Santa Ana's. I didn't know. I was six years old. And I remember, too, I remember like I'm standing there right now. I remember my mom and dad having one of those parental nonverbal arguments. Have you ever seen one of these things happen? My dad's about to go, yes, and my mom's... And my dad just blurted out, sure, son. I, I, rem I was stunned. Not just that I was going to get the knife, but that dad just went for it. He just, he didn't care. At least once. And so my dad bought the knife in the Alamo gift shop. And, and I remember we, we went on about our business the rest of the day. And then that night we went back to the Holiday Inn where we were staying, and if you never stayed in a Holiday Inn, I'm just sorry. It was nice. And I remember <laughs> the next morning when we woke up, I went and asked my dad if I could see my knife, my knife. And I walked outside of our room onto the sidewalk right outside our room, and, and I sat down with, with my knife, and, and I took it out of the sheath, and and I was looking at it, and the, just that stainless steel glistening in the Texas sun that morning. I'll never forget it. But at six years old, I didn't know what sharp meant. I mean, my dad had told me, son, be very careful with this. It is sharp. It will, it will cut you. And so at six years old, I was going, what is sharp? Can define sharp. And so I did exactly what you're thinking I did. As I took that knife out of the sheath, I, I just kind of had it in my hand there. And, and I, I'll never forget this. I just kind of went. And, and just this, this, little, this little trickle of blood on my finger became a little bit larger trickle of blood, and, and, and it kind of started to run down my hand, and, uh, and I was so upset. It, I mean, it hurt, but I was more embarrassed than I was hurt, you know? 
And so I jumped up off the curb and I read, Dad, Dad, I cut myself with the knife, Dad. I don't deserve the knife. Take the knife. I, I'm dying. It's what I felt like. And my dad was awesome. He, he turned to my mom and said, would you hand me a towel, please? He took a towel and clamped down. I was like, ah. He goes, you apply pressure to a wound. And, and, he, and he just kind of held it there for a second. And, and he kind of, I could tell he, he was gripping it to, to keep it from bleeding. And, and we walked back out to the curb where I had originally <laughs> wounded myself. And we sat down and he said, bud, told you the knife's sharp. He said, I'm not taking it away from you, but now you know. Be careful with the knife. A lot of us in this room have pierced ourselves with many sorrows where money is concerned. We've wounded ourselves with a tool that God intended I'll never forget what my dad said to me sitting there on the, the sidewalk of the Holiday Inn. He said, son, the knife is a tool. It's not a toy. Money's not a toy. It's a tool. It's a tool that we all have to figure out how to use. We have to figure out where to prioritize in our lives. There will never be a moment of your life there will never be a moment of my life where I don't have to manage money spiritually. I'm not talking about managing the columns and the decimal places. I'm talking about managing money in my heart, in your heart. We all have to figure this out. Is there anybody here who, who is, does everybody here eat? Everybody, you have to eat, right? You, you, I mean, most of us. You have to figure out, and it doesn't matter if you've got a lot, if you've got a little, if you've got a middle. We all have to figure this out. And that money can, can cut our spiritual heart. It can, it can mess us up if we've put too much faith, if we put too much confidence in it, if we worry about it too much. You can never be intimidated by money, nor infatuated with money. Either one will pierce your soul with many griefs and sorrows. That's just the fact of the matter. And what Paul said bears a striking resemblance to what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was, was explaining for the first time, really, this, this gospel, this kingdom of God thing. And he said, listen, I understand that, that you're going to have to eat. I understand you're going to have to wear clothes. That, that's kind of part of the deal. But, but, but don't worry about that stuff. Specifically, here's what Jesus said in, Ma in Matthew chapter number 6. He said, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, what shall we drive? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. 
Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Righteousness is a big, big church word. It just means right living. It means resembling Jesus. It means following Christ. You, you seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness in your life. And then watch how God manages everything else in you and through you. Now, when we use the term the kingdom of God, we, you know, kingdom, most of us think Game of Thrones or, you know, old-timey crowns and kings and queens and all that kind of thing. And, and to be sure, God is sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is large and in charge. This is his whole game, okay? It's his world. We're living in it, literally. But understand that the kingdom of God begins in each of us individually, begins when we invite his authority and submit to his authority in our lives. That's where the kingdom of God begins. Then it radiates out. But it starts in here. It's easy to talk about the kingdom of God in a theoretical, geopolitical sense. That's what the disciples were doing after Jesus' resurrection. They were like, here we go. He's back from the dead. We're getting ready to throw off Roman rule, and it is time for Israel to reign again. And they misunderstood that the kingdom of God is about our hearts. It's, it's about our lives being surrendered to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In every way, including materially, including any other idol that might usurp God's rightful place in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God in here and his righteousness in everything that we do. And then all those other things will be added to you as well. Paul wasn't done, though, with Timothy. Look back at verses 17 through 19. He says, Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, would somebody help Paul preach? But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. There it is. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, you got to have money to eat. You, you have to have money to live. But to live the life that is truly life, you have to put it in its proper place. And, and I love that, that Paul said to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. And some of you were thinking, boy, that is right. Three snaps and a Z. Here we go, Paul. Preach it, brother. Those rich people need to know. Guess what? We're all rich. Every single person within the sound of my voice falls under the heading of rich in this context. In comparison to this day and age in which Paul was writing to Timothy, in comparison to every other person on the face of the earth, 
you and I are wealthy. Tell your neighbor right now like you mean it, congratulations. Some of y'all mumbled that. <laughs> Command those who are wealthy in this age not to put their hope and their faith in wealth, which is so <laughs> uncertain, but in God. And I love that, that Paul goes a little bit further there and he says, remember that God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. If you experience a blessing, you have a responsibility before God to enjoy it. <laughs> Knock yourself out. But keep it in its proper place. Make sure that it does not become one of those idols, one of those illusions of divine order, love, and significance in your life. But you seek first the kingdom of God. And take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, remember when we started this series, The Life of the Party, we, we focused on his resurrection, but it wasn't just biological life that he came back to. It was spiritual life. It was the life that is truly life that he came back and offered to anyone who would believe in him who would never die, but would have eternal life. This is the promise and the offer of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you if you'll bow your heads with me for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to just ask you a very, very simple but straightforward question. Have you personally and definitively taken hold of the life that is truly life? Have you stepped into a relationship with Jesus? And you need to understand that's a binary question. It's yes or no. If you have Man, I want to, I want to just, in, just beg you to be praying with everything that you have right now. Because there are probably people here who haven't. And if you haven't accepted Christ, if you haven't taken hold of the life that is truly life, why not right now? Just right where you're sitting, Begin. Just, just begin with a prayer of commitment, a prayer of surrendering your life to the kingdom of God, to, to Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just right where you're sitting, if, if, if God's leading you to do that, then you just pray right now. You pray with everything that you have. Just silently, something like this in your own words, just talk to God and silently say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need the life that is truly life 
in you. Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment. But if that was your prayer and you meant it, then I want to say something to you specifically. This is the greatest moment of your life. And it's a moment that you need to mark. You're in the perfect place because you're surrounded by a group of imperfect people who just want to help, who want to come alongside and be a family of faith with you. And the best way to start that is just to take the Connect card that's, that's in your program, fill it out, and just indicate there about halfway down, I committed my life to Christ today. Tear it off at the perforation, and, and on your way out the door, just hand that card to one of our ushers, or maybe to somebody at the, the blue tent out there underneath the front porch. But then second of all, I want to encourage you, if that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in this sacred moment, would you just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand? Just, just raise your hand and mark this moment in your life. And as you do that, you also mark this moment in the life of this church. Because there is nothing more important to us than this moment in your life and others like it. It's why we exist. And so as a church, we join with heaven. The Bible tells us that all of heaven celebrates when one person, when one person takes hold of the life that is truly life, all of heaven celebrates it. And so as the family of faith, we, we join with heaven. We celebrate that with you as you put your hands down. We put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.